Everybody loves the touchdown. Throws to the back of the end zone, and it is touchdown by Holmes. The grand slam. Fly ball to center field. Ethier has done it again. It's a grand slam. The buzzer beater. Gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! But how did those players get to that moment? And who built the venue and signed the contracts? We dig into the business side of sports and give you the answers. This is Sports Business Radio. Now, from our studios in Portland, Oregon, with Sports Business Radio, here's your host, Brian Berger. Well, thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Glad you could join us this week. We've got a jam-packed show for you. Mike Jones, the GM and Director of Golf Operations at Kapalua Golf Resort in Maui. I had the extreme pleasure of playing the Kapalua Plantation course, the home of the Hyundai Championship, leads off the PGA Tour. Uh, I was there recently, and we're going to review the course, talk to Mike about the Hyundai Championship and Kapalua's Golf Resort. It is just gorgeous if you've not been there. Uh, We'll talk to Mike Jones coming up on the show today. John Wartime, the executive editor and senior writer for Sports Illustrated. Sports Illustrated making news this week, breaking the story of five-part series called The Dirty Game on Oklahoma State's football program. How did this story come to be? Was anyone that was interviewed paid? How many players did they talk to? Uh, we will get the backstory on Sports Illustrated's coverage of Oklahoma State's football program. That's coming up with John Wartime on our show today. Finally, Christine Brennan, sports columnist, commentator for ABC News and NPR. She writes a column for USA Today. I'm sure you've uh, heard of her, and she's been on the show many times before. We'll talk about a plethora of topics with her. Are we doing enough to keep sports venues safe? Also, the Washington NFL team, why are national writers not referring to them by their nickname anymore? We'll talk to Christine Brennan about that coming up on today's show. A couple of other notes, visit my sports business blog or download the SBR podcast on demand. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com. You can become our Facebook friend or follow me on Twitter. Those icons are on the front page of sportsbusinessradio.com. And obviously, I'm on Twitter at SB Radio. If you're not following me, I tweet uh, pretty proficiently. So I invite you to follow me on Twitter at SB Radio. Coming up next, Mike Jones from Kapalua Golf Resort. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Stay in the know at sportsbusinessradio.com. Podcasts, blogs, and more. SBR will be right back. Hi, it's Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm not on the radio, I team with nationally known sports writer and broadcaster Rick Buecher, former Nike PR senior executive Lee Weinstein, and veteran strategic communications executive John Lashway to form media and social media training firm Everything is on the Record. The Everything is on the Record team provides a unique blend of strategic PR and journalism expertise to our clients. We have worked in the trenches in corporate boardrooms with CEOs and company spokespeople. We've also worked in newsrooms alongside editors and reporters. Everything is on the Record uses an innovative and unique approach to media training. 
Through the use of current media and social media examples tailored specifically for you, we prepare you for how best to relate to the digital media world that exists today. Whether you're meeting with a reporter, sitting at your home computer, or typing on your smartphone, you're on the record. We'll also put you through real-life scenarios where you'd be dealing with a reporter so when you see the real thing, you'll be well-prepared and comfortable. With a goal of enhancing your image, protecting your reputation, and helping you connect with the people who are most important to your brand, we will show you how to develop the skills you need to be successful in a world where everyone has a camera, a recorder, and a desire to make news. For more information on our services and to learn more about our team of communications all-stars, go online to everythingisontherecord.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at everythingisontherecord.com. You can call us today at 503-701-2215. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. My guest is Mike Jones. He's the GM and Director of Golf Operations for Kapalua Golf. I had the great pleasure of playing the plantation course when I was in Maui recently. I've got to say it's my favorite course on the planet. Mike, how are you? I'm great this morning, and thank you for the uh, the nice introduction there and the, uh, the the endorsement of Kapalua. Well, it's just a fantastic uh, golf course, in my opinion. We'll get into more of the details of the course in a moment, but what a, an amazing resort you have. You've got the Plantation Course, you've got the Bay Course, you've got the Kapalua Golf Academy, and obviously the Plantation Course is home to the Hyundai Tournament of Champions, which I've also attended in the past, and you guys do a great job with that, let's start with an overview of the, the property. I know there have been some changes over the last several years. Update us on where you are right now with everything. Well, on the resort here, we've got uh, three different accommodations that are available. You've got the Kapalua Villas, where you could rent a, a one, two, three-bedroom villa, have a kitchen in there, so if you want to cook meals in home, um, you know you have options like that. You have a Ritz-Carlton Hotel. Um, about a 435-room Ritz-Carlton. And then we also have what we call the club and residences at Kapalua, which is a little more upscale. There are two- and three-bedroom units that um, become part of the Kapalua Club, and, you know, either you can rent them or uh, own them and be part of the, the club here at Kapalua. So from an accommodation standpoint, we've got three different options there. And then uh, on resort uh, under my direction, we have Kapalua Tennis. It's ranked one of the top 20 tennis uh, resorts in the world. And the team down there does a great job promoting tennis, providing daily clinics, matchmaking for tennis, things along that line. And then we get to the good part, which is what I am. We're in a PGA pro. It's the golf courses. You've got Plantation Course, um, ranked number one course in Hawaii, home of the Hyundai Tournament of Champions. And, uh, that tournament will be back this year and next year, and hopefully for years beyond that. Um, and then we've got the Bay Course. The Bay Course is kind of known as Hawaii's favorite resort course. It's a, a little more uh, playable than the Plantation. The Plantation is uh, our challenging professional course, but it's still very playable. And then the Bay Course is more of our resort-style course, a little shorter, about 6,600 yards long, and um uh, a couple holes right down on the ocean, par three, you get to hit kitty corner across the ocean, and if you're here the right time of the year, you get to watch the whales down there. Yeah, it's amazing. Go to golf at golfatkapalua.com to see some amazing pictures, but 
when you're playing the plantation course, the vista views and the views of the ocean. And like you said, if you're coming January, February time frame, you can see the whales out in the water. Uh, my daughter and I went to the plantation house restaurant the last night of our trip and sat on you know one of the window seats and watched the most phenomenal sunset I've ever seen in my entire life. It really is positioned on the mountain in just an incredible way. It is, yeah. That clubhouse sits a little bit up on the hill. Of course, you got the Pacific in front of you, and eight miles across, you got the island of Molokai. Uh, that's one of the neat things I like about the west side of Maui here, where we're located, is that as we look out, we can see Molokai uh, just out in front of us, Lanai to our left. So we've got some neighbors there that we can view. We don't just look out at open ocean, so it's spectacular and beautiful. Um, you know, even on our website, for guests that are listening in, on that golf at com, they can go in. There's a webcam. It's live. They can see, you know, people teeing off on the first hole and the view they get here at Kapalua, which, to me, um, my office sits in the clubhouse right above, so I have that view from my office, so I call it the best view in golf. Yeah, that is no joke. Mike Jones, the GM and director of golf, op- golf operations at Kapalua Golf, is Joining us, let's talk about the Hyundai Tournament of Champions. Obviously, you've got to be a champion. You've got to win on the tour to play in your event in January. I know wind has been a big thing. When I played there uh, recently, wind wasn't too windy. I got a, a lucky day, but I know in the past it's a real challenge for even the pros because the wind comes into play up on the side of the mountain and off the ocean. Yeah, well, this past year, obviously in 2013, we had a big front that sat up just north of us on top of the ocean there, and, uh, you know, we had a lot of wind issues that people might have seen. But over the history, over the 30 years of golf at Kapalua, whether it been on the bay course before or the plantation recently, um, you know, the, the course has only had this year is the only time the course has had a delay in play. Uh, in, in all the other years, we've never had a delay. So, But the wind is a factor up here. It blows. There's no doubt about it. You get the trade winds blowing. This year was just kind of an oddity there. But uh, the cool thing about the plantation is when ben, Coor, uh, ben Crenshaw and Bill Coor designed it, they designed it to play with the trade winds. So it's set up to usually play with the trade winds unless we get an extreme case like in 2013. Probably my favorite hole in golf is 18 at Plantation, the downhill par 5. And if you have the wind going with you, you can hit it pretty good. You get some roll down the hill, but it is a fun, fun hole to play. I bet you get that feedback from many of your golfers who play there. We do. You know, from the back tees, it's uh, 650 yards long, and, uh, you know, there's other options. We usually don't play it back there on a regular basis, but – um, you know, it's reachable in two, you know, even because of its length, because you're right. Um, we have a little note on our GPS that says, aim at the chimneys on the clubhouse, which is on the right <laughs> side of the fairway, and the ball will roll down. It's uh, one of the cool things, I think. It's one of the places where you'll probably hit your longest drive of your life because you can literally hit a, a good solid tee shot there and it roll down the hill and get over 300 yards on your tee shot there. So, it's a, it's a cool hole. It's a great finishing hole. It makes for a lot of excitement during tournament week. Yeah, I bet. Let's talk about the tournament a little bit. I know you have good attendance there. Uh, the players obviously rave anytime they get to come play the Kapalua Plantation course, and, and they get to bring their families with them to start off the year. 
the health of the tournament seems to be very good. It is. Uh, you know, we're. Um, I'm actually uh, this week uh, heading into Chicago for the BMW Championship, and um, you know we'll be on the range at the BMW, talking to the players, making sure they're coming their accommodations. But these young players on tour nowadays, you know, with your your uh, Justin Roses, your Adam Scott, your Brant Snedekers, they're an exciting group of players, and they come to the tournament all the time. And uh, they just love it here. Of course, I love some of our old favorites that come to Steve Stricker. Um, he and I are from the same area originally, so we've become friends over the years. And I love it when those old champions get to come too. And then we're looking at the new guys, you know, the Jordan Spieths of the world and people like that that will make the tournament even better. And uh, um, this year we've got a great field and we're really looking forward to it. When I was having dinner with my daughter in the Plantation House restaurant, uh, this past week before I left, I was talking to some of the people that work on the staff in the bar, and they said probably the nicest guy, the guy who signed autographs, who helped with uh, academies and, and really gave of his time was Ricky Fowler, and they thought he was uh, fantastic. So I thought that was good to hear. And, again, you know, another one of those young guys on the tour. Yeah, Ricky has uh, uh, been very good to Kapalua. Um, you know, being general manager and director of golf here, I got a little – a little more, um, you know, time with, you know, the players and things like that. I get to sit in the lunchroom with them, and Ricky's been spectacular. Even at the end of the week, he left his golf bag, his orange Puma golf bag, and signed Ricky Fowler on it. So we've got that displayed in the pro shop, and that becomes a conversation piece. But he's such a good young kid who really wants to be a role model and really wants to do things right that uh, – we, we love it when he uh, gets to qualify and come out here to Kapalua. If people want to get tickets to the Hyundai Tournament of Champions, I know it's not until January, but when can they start getting tickets and how do they do that? Tickets are available online. And, um, you know, they can go on to the PGA Tour website um, and then click under events, Hyundai Tournament of Champions, and find it underneath there. Uh, so they're on sale already. Um, you know, when if they're in the area here, they're going to be in sales in the ABC stores and, and in the pro shops and places like that where they can get them. Um, tournament week starts December 31st this year and runs through the 7th, so we finish on Monday um, with the Pro-Am being on January 2nd. So, um, you know, we'd encourage anybody to come out because it's a great event. And the nice thing about our event is that, um, you know, smaller field, you're out in the middle of the Pacific, so we don't get the 100000 like they do at Scottsdale. So you get a little closer to the players, you get to see them, and get to um, you know, be a little more intimate into the event than you would at some other events. Well, the two things I like about watching the event, one is just to see how far the pros drive some of those par fives. But then two, they struggle on the greens just like I do. Those are fast greens there, and sometimes they're tough to read. So I like to... See that all right? There, there. Even the pros have some difficulty reading the uh, the fast green sometimes. Yeah, and I think if you've looked over the years here at Kapalua, some of our champions, including like Steve Stricker, this year Dustin Johnson. Um, you know, in the past, Jeff Ogilvy won a few times. Stuart Appleby won three times. Uh, most all of them have played the course for a couple of years before they won, and that's a testament to it. The the uh, course was designed with large fairways and large greens because of the wind and being on the side of the West Maui Mountains here. 
so it makes it playable for the average person. Um, you get to hit a few more greens because they're big, but putting on the greens is real important, and I think you usually see a, a champion who's played here a few times and has gotten used to those before they win. Just a few minutes left with Mike Jones, who's the GM and Director of Golf Operations for Kapalua Golf. Uh, Kapalua Golf Academy is world-renowned. It's a beautiful facility. How can people sign up to be a part of the Golf Academy? And, you know, is there a minimum number of days you need to sign up for? How does that work? Well, the Academy, um, we've got some great instructors at the Academy. Ben Hongo is our Director of Instruction, been the uh, Teacher of the Year here in Hawaii a few times, associated. Kapalua is managed by Troon Golf, so in that network we have you know, Tim Mahoney, one of the top 50 golf instructors worldwide, who's out here not on a regular basis, but every once in a while, and we tend to do some fantasy caps. Those will all be listed on our websites. But at the Academy, you can do anything from a one-hour private lesson to a three-day golf school, and some of those larger schools include, um, you know, golf in the more or uh, instruction in the morning, golf in the afternoon, things like that. So, Golf at Kapalua.com. Click on Kapalua Golf Academy. Our team over there is very responsive. They can answer any questions you have. And, um, you know, we feel like uh, we're the top academy here in Hawaii with our experienced teaching pros and the kind of offer uh, offerings they bring. And so, um, you know, if you're looking to improve your game or just happen to be here on a resort and you want to take a lesson before you go play, we could do all of that for our guests. Selfishly, I've got to ask you, I've got an eight-and-a-half-year-old daughter who is really embracing the game of golf. As a matter of fact, when we played, she rode around in the cart and really loved the course. At the the Kapalua Golf Academy, are there kids' camps? There are kids' camps. We run them um, year-round at different times of the year. Um, One of the really cool things about the Golf Academy, too, especially for beginning or for junior golfers, is – that we have three holes that we maintain over there by the academy that players can go out and play on. So if they're new or if they're juniors just beginning the game, they don't have to feel the intimidation of being on the, you know, the big plantation course or on the bay course with guests behind them. So we have that opportunity. And in addition, on our bay course, we do have on the front nine what we call keiki teeth. Keiki in Hawaiian means child, and so or children. And so we have keiki teeth that are moved up to a yardage that's good for the younger kids to play and be able to keep pace of play. So we have lots of opportunities for juniors. Well, and I've got to say, too, before we go, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Plantation House Restaurant, some of the best food I've ever had, just outstanding panoramic view. If you go there for dinner and watch the sunset, you're not going to see a better view of the sunset anywhere. And then down below near the Bay Course, you've got the Pineapple Grill. So you guys do a really outstanding job with your food as well. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, um, yeah, the Plantation House restaurants had a great reputation over the year. It serves a wonderful Sunday brunch if people are in town and want to participate in the brunch and the dining atmosphere at night, um, you know, especially just before sunset, looking out there at the ocean is beautiful. And then down at the other end, the Pineapple Grill, it's been voted the number one restaurant in Maui two out of the last three years. Uh, Chris Kaivi, our manager down there who does runs the restaurant, uh, does a fantastic job, and their specialty is an upside-down pineapple cake. Ooh, I have to try that next time I'm there. I didn't know about that. <laughs> yeah, he does a really good job with that. So, 
Well, that's fantastic. Mike Jones, the GM and Director of Golf Operations from Kapalua Golf. If you want to learn more about how to make a tee time at Kapalua, how to get signed up for the Golf Academy, how to get tickets for the Hyundai Tournament of Champions, just go to golfatkapalua.com, golfatkapalua.com. Mike, again, thank you so much for your hospitality. It's great to have you on the show, and I immensely enjoyed my time at uh, Kapalua. Well, I'm happy to hear you say that, and that's what we try to strive for here is just making sure every guest that walks through the door has a great experience when they walk away from here. And so if anybody's planning out on coming, you'll get uh, you'll get that at Kapalua. Uh, not just great golf, but a great experience, and we appreciate the time today. All right, Mike. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right. Take care. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back podcast this show and any other past SBR episode at sportsbusinessradio.com. Back with more SBR after this. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. It's no secret that we're battling a tough economy these days. It's more difficult than ever for companies to position their brand in a unique way and reach their target audience. Sports Business Radio can help you, though. Sports Business Radio is syndicated in markets nationwide. Our popular podcast is regularly rated in the top 100 business news podcasts on iTunes and has listeners around the world. But our radio network and podcast aren't the only places your company will receive exposure when you join our family of sponsors. We'll also give you exposure via sportsbusinessradio.com and at our new Sports Executive Speaker Series events, which feature a conversation with a key decision maker from the world of sports in front of a live audience. And best of all, we can expose your product to the big-name guests that appear on our show. We'd love to have you on our team. Please contact me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com or at 503-701-2215 if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Sports Business Radio. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. My guest is John Wartime. He's the executive editor and senior writer for Sports Illustrated. Sports Illustrated, the talk of the town this week with a five-part series on Oklahoma State's football program entitled The Dirty Game. You can find it online at sportsillustrated.com and obviously in the edition of Sports Illustrated. John, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, interesting story. Let's start with when did you become aware of what was going on at Oklahoma State, and how did that process take place? Like I've talked to the guys at Yahoo Sports before, and you know sometimes people give you tips, sometimes you uncover things when you're investigating stories. How did that unfold at Oklahoma State? Well, I mean, even before that, I I had wanted to commission a story and and have have us do a story sort of on what goes on in a big-time college football program. And there are scandals from time to time, and sort of anyone, Brian, you know that. I mean, anyone who's been around college sports sure. hears stories and whispers and, and payments and, you know, mar- marijuana and grades. I mean, we, we hear all this innuendo and hearsay, and I wanted to just sort of look into a program and sort of venture inside the factory and spend some time there and really give sort of a comprehensive look at what goes on instead of sort of just waiting for the next scandal to to, to fall and then and then chase that. And so um, we wanted to look at a program that had, had gotten good very quickly. And, you know, fr- frankly, we, we had uh, one of our staffers, Thayer Evans, had some, some knowledge and some experience with Oklahoma State and, and sort of we poked around there and sort of the more we poked around, the more 
we found players, ex-players, former coaches willing to talk and paint this portrait. And so we chose Oklahoma State, but it really is intended, and I hope this doesn't get lost. I mean, this is really sort of intended to be representative of the landscape. And certainly a lot of this is specific to Oklahoma State and the Stillwater, but it's more sort of these these are the rules of engagement. And that's not to say that every program is doing this, but, uh, you know, you're, you're naive to think this only goes on in, in, in Oklahoma. So one of the tough things about doing a story like this, John, obviously, is getting people to talk to you on the record. You were able to get a dozen or so players who played between 2000 and 2011 to go on record with you. What was that process like, getting them, convincing them to open up and, and go on record with you about their time at Oklahoma State? Well, that, that was something else that I think makes this story significant, that the reporters on the story, Thayer, Thayer Evans and George Gorman, got more than 60 former players. So, you know, if, if you have a guy or two who, who says something, it's one thing. When you, when you have 60 former players telling their story, all of this independent, so, uh, you know, it's not as though they were all in a room. I mean, these were all, all these interviews were independent of each other. It, it really, I think, solidified the reporting and the, the sort of portrait they paint really came into focus a lot more. And, you know, honestly, the, the sourcing, I think, was really significant here that you've, you've got 60 guys over the period of a decade explaining what their experience was like. I mean, all of them, I think, had different motivations for talking. But I think that, you know, again, it's one thing to, to speculate about what goes on in college sports. I don't think any reader, frankly, is going to read this and say, holy cow, I never would have thought that at a big-time college football program there were some payments from boosters. But to actually have the sourcing and have 60 guys on the record with their names, some of them even on video, saying, yes, here's how it went down, that to me is what, what makes it significant. So if I'm the AD at Oklahoma State or I'm T. Boone Pickens, who's already spoken out about against Sports Illustrated and your, and your reporting, I'm saying out of all the programs out there in America, why did you pick me? Is it just because of what you just said where you had 60 players willing to go on the record and really put some beef behind this story? Yeah, I, again, we, we had sort of heard murmurs of this program and sort of the more we probed, the more it seemed as though there was, you know, there, there was smoke there, but – you know, honestly, I, I thought the the AD statement the other day was really was really quite honorable, and you know, he basically said we're going to look at these allegations and we take them seriously. And I think they're, you know, I mean, I I'm not immune to the the message board chatter, and there does seem to be the sense of sort of why why these guys, you know, why why us from from Oklahoma State, and I think that's valid. But but again, this was more sort of this was I, I keep saying this this was the sausage factory we chose to investigate, but. You know, we, the the idea is that this is really more of a comprehensive look at big time college football in, in 2013. John Wartime, executive editor and senior writer for Sports Illustrated, is joining us. How long was this investigation from start to finish? Um, this started about ten months ago, so this was uh, this was pretty exhaustive, and some of these players were quite difficult to find. Uh, we devoted a lot of. Uh, a lot of time and resources to this, and you know, honestly, there were there were some allegations, and there was some discussion. Why don't we just publish that? And we decided it would make for a much stronger story to sort of get everything in and really give this this overall look at this program and and do a longer story. So some of this information, you know, we we've we've had for months and months and months, but we decided, you know, to to really present this more comprehensively. So it's interesting how you're presenting the story. Uh, I, is my understanding. 
All of it at some point will live on sportsillustrated.com. You've got video that goes along with the story. And then how much of it will actually be in the magazine as well? Well, the first piece on um, sort of the overview and then the the piece about the money will, you know, it's the, the cover story in this week's issue. And then the piece that I really think is most important, which is the final piece on the fallout and the damaged lives and how a lot of these kids feel as though they were exploited and, and sort of spat out by this machine. That'll be in the magazine as well. And there are other, I mean, almost, it's almost like a chapter book. And then sort of t- today's piece is on academics. Wednesday, you know, Thursdays will be on uh, the, the drug issues they had. Uh, Fridays will be on the use of, of sex and the recruiting of, of prospects. So it's, it's, you know, a comprehensive week-long series, but the, the first and the last piece will be, be in the magazine. What's been the feedback that you've received? I mean, again, this has been a huge story this week. Every sports talk show in America is talking about this. What's been the feedback you personally have received on this story so far? You know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you do any investigative story, whether it's Lance Armstrong or Alex Rodriguez or, you know, whatever, even Jerry Sandusky, which, you know, seems, seems pretty uh, – seems pretty black and white. Any investigative story, there's going to be blowback. I mean, you're going after a, a community. You're going after an institution that a lot of people feel strongly about. Um, you know, I'm honestly, I'm, I'm a bit surprised at sort of the, the ad hominem attacks on one of the writers involved, that it, it's gotten got very personal. But I also feel like, you know, when the dust settles and when all five parts are digested, and again, when hopefully people see this as really representative in addition to, to focusing on OSU, um, it, it's just been interesting because, you know, we, we've only had one of the five segments so far. So, you know, I, I've sort of, again, I read the message boards and read the comment section like everyone. And I, I guess I'm just kind of waiting to see if any of these opinions that are negative change once people see the wealth of evidence and sort of the whole the whole series laid out instead of basing their, their anger kind of viscerally on, on that first piece. One of the questions I get all the time is when you're doing a story like this, I mean, again, you said, hey, we got 60 players to talk to us. Do you have to pay these guys? Do they just open up to you? How does that work for the people out there wondering how today's sports journalism world works? Speaking for Sports Illustrated, if if I ever heard that anyone paid for an interview, that's like the biggest no-no. So there's, there's no – there's zero I, – I can't like be – more for, there's zero money changes hands. I mean that's that's sort of uh, that's 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 worse than uh, money changing hands from boosters. I mean, that, that just would never happen. I think that you know on, honestly some sources some subjects want to talk, and some sources you know after thinking about it want to talk, and some sources don't want to talk, and people have different motivations. And you know again there were there were more than 60 former players who decided yes I want to tell my story I'm happy to do it on the record I'm happy to do it giving my name to to me that's pretty exceptional and pretty rare for for a story like this but I mean I I can't state this more uh forcefully no there there's certainly not a uh financial component to this nobody was paid a dime to well, not, I didn't think... or, or anyone I mean even even ESP I mean nobody right you know that that just doesn't unless you're the national that, that doesn't happen well, it's good for you, someone in your position, to set the record straight on that because, again, I get that question all the time from people, and I always say, no, I don't think they're paying for that. I think people are 
you know, opening up to them. But I think there's just the cynics out there, the fans who think, oh, yeah, well, they had to have been paid some amount of money to go on camera. You know, we've seen this story a little bit before uh, recently with the University of Miami, that investigation's still going on. John, is there anything that can be done if someone appointed you the czar of college sports tomorrow? Is there anything that can be done to clean up college sports or is it become so uh, big with money and what's at stake that it's just there's no turning back at this point? I I just think you, you've got to. And the point of this is not to sort of take on the NCAA or not to even really have that discussion about whether to pay college athletes. But I just think when you have this much money changing hands and this much commerce and one cohort not getting paid, it, it just defies any rational economics. I mean, you, you have a black market for any other product in the world in this sort of economic scenario. Why would you think it would be any different in college sports where, you know, you've got head coaches making $6 million and, and the labor comes free? It just defies any reason that you wouldn't have this kind of, uh, you know, you wouldn't have these inefficiencies and, and these sort of loopholes and this basically this, this black market. So I think you know, I don't think paying for athletes. I mean, Time Magazine had a great cover story this week about about paying college athletes, and I agree with it in theory. But if every athlete gets a wage of X, it still doesn't prevent a program or a booster from doubling it if you come to that program. And I I just think that the economics are such that it just doesn't work not to pay these guys. And whether it's you know something with a trust or whether it's enabling athletes to get endorsements. So they, you know, if you're the quarterback, you can get more than the lineman. Uh, there has to be an economic model because an industry that makes this kind of money, I mean, Oklahoma state and is hardly at the top of the heap and they could do, you know, a $40 million in, in football. It, it just doesn't stand to reason that the people providing that value are going to accept not getting paid. No, I agree with you. I've said many times on this show, one of my solutions, and, and I preface this with I'm a big fan of Title IX. I have a daughter. But I think when Title IX was developed back in, I believe, 1972, college sports wasn't a multi-billion dollar business like it is today. And I think what needs to happen is college football and college basketball at the highest levels, the D1 levels, need to be regulated and governed differently than softball, tennis, golf, swimming, water polo. It just doesn't make sense anymore. And then the athletes who are participating in the revenue-generating sports need to be treated differently, mainly with compensation and licensing, whether you put it into trust, as opposed to the the non-revenue-generating sports. Doesn't that seem to make sense to you, John? I, I don't think it solves everything, and I – you know, we, we've Title IX is an issue that would have to somehow, whether it's congressional legislation or what, I mean, somehow you'd have to get around that. But I, I think that's a start. I mean, the, the response goes something like this, which is if every college athlete got you, know, you pick pick a number, you know, fifty thousand dollars a year from a revenue sport, what's to prevent a booster from saying, "Hey, come to my school and we'll make it seventy-five"? I mean, it, it doesn't take corruption out of the equation, but it's sure better than what we have now, which is just apart, apart from the ethics and, and the, the morals or lack of morals of generating these huge profits and having schools and coaches benefit to enormous amounts on the backs of kids, it, it just defies any economic model. I mean, it, there, there's, there's no reason to think there wouldn't be corruption. Well, and the thing that's really struck me about your story so far in Oklahoma State, what I've seen on video, is 
the guys that talk to you, so many of them are, are casualties of the system. So they didn't make the NFL. They didn't make the big time. They're kind of down and out now. And they never had a chance to capitalize while they were players on anything, whether it was licensing or autographs or whatever that may be. So that window for them has now closed. And now, you know, it looks like some of them may be a little regretful or bitter. And there's a lot of athletes like that that I see that feel like when they were in the limelight in college and could have potentially cashed in on something or on their name or likeness, that window closed and then they don't make it to the next level because, as you know, that's a very small number of people who play in the pros. It's just an interesting observation I had with listening to the people that you interviewed for this story. Well, the last part of the series, the fifth part, is on the fallout, the human cost of all this. And I think to me that was really what was the most jarring and problematic. I mean, again, honestly, if you're around sports in any way, you're not necessarily surprised to learn that, yes, for star players, sometimes Ds get turned into Bs, and, and sometimes, you know, they're, they're slipped $200 handshakes. I mean, I think we all almost cynically assume that goes on. But to me, the, the really jarring part of this whole series was the final part, which are here are these kids. A lot of them, honestly, probably were not fit for college academically. For whatever reason, injury, whether it was something, you know, that they got in trouble, whether they simply weren't good enough, they were you know, no, no longer of use to this program and we're just sort of, you know, spat out. And there's a whole, you know, again, most of the 60 people that we spoke to on the record feel as though they were exploited by the system. A lot of them did not graduate. I mean, these football programs that are subsidizing every other program and the, the golf team gets to travel because of football revenue and the crew team gets new boats because of the football revenue a lot of times those are the athletes who are graduating at the lowest rate. And in the case of Oklahoma State, certainly certainly elsewhere, but in the case of Oklahoma State, we write about athlete after athlete that once the perks stopped coming, once for whatever reason they were no longer of value to this program, they were really cast aside. And this whole notion of, you know, even if you don't make the NFL, there's virtue in sports and you get a college degree, that really is a myth in a lot of cases. So would you say, I mean, a lot of these guys are getting college degrees. Uh, would you say that many of them, at least in this instance at Oklahoma State, weren't taking advantage of that? Are they simply in the mind frame or, you know what, I'm going to school for football and, and I'm not going to class and I'm just going to try and do whatever I can through the university to stay academic, academically eligible? Yeah, again, again, the second piece, which is on, I just looked, it's on right now on SI.com is, is about the academics. And you can see that there is a system that exists to keep these kids eligible. A lot of times, I mean, you see this, if you go through media guys, sometimes you see this, you know, they, they say as freshmen, they want to be you know, a, a doctor, a lawyer, and then they major in something that has no bearing on what their aspirations are. And, you know, again, the, the graduation rates in a lot of these cases speak for themselves, they're obviously success stories. They're obviously, you know, kids who might not otherwise have gone to college that, that graduate and, and are productive. But it just seems as though, for an industry that makes this much money and makes this many people wealthy and that subsidizes so many other athletes, it's just a shame that they often have some of the highest uh, dropout rate and some of the lowest graduation rate and some of the highest rate of the kind of stories that we tell in this fifth part about people that really feel as though they were sort of collateral damage to this big industry. Last question for you, you know, and we talk about this a lot on this show. What does the NCAA become from here? Because again, 
more and more of these stories, whether it's University of Miami, Oklahoma State, Penn State, uh, we're hearing them at an alarming rate. Entities like yours are uncovering these types of stories and disturbing stories at that. Does, is there anything the NCAA can do or do they need to morph into something else? Does someone else need to run college sports? How, how do you think that shapes out from here? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, the, the NCAA, is, it's, it's almost not a fair fight. And part of it is the relationship. And, you know, the NCAA, frankly, does quite well on this this amateurism. And, I mean, we, we've seen questions about the effectiveness. We've seen questions about leadership. We've seen questions about resources. And it it just seems to me it's 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 not a fair fight. I mean, it's just it's bringing a knife to a gunfight. And the NCAA, we talk about NCAA reform, but I think NCAA as an institution needs to reform. I mean, if you're going to keep this, what I think is a myth, but if, you, if you're going to keep this amateurism going, the NCAA has got to reform, meaning it's got to reshape itself. It's got to have a different relationship with the institutions because what's going on now is, is just – I mean, honestly, it's, it's a joke. Well, and if you look at it just in its basic form – the enforcement staff at the NCAA, and there's yeah, been many changes right. there. Yeah, like you said. Fighting with hands tied behind it. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Well, John Wartime, executive editor, senior writer for Sports Illustrated, terrific series on sportsillustrated.com and in the magazine this week, five-part series on Oklahoma State's football program entitled The Dirty Game. John, thanks for the insight. Always appreciate when you join us on the show. Happy to do it. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Stay in the know at sportsbusinessradio.com. Podcasts, blogs, and more. SBR will be right back. Hi, it's Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm not on the radio, I team with nationally known sports writer and broadcaster Rick Buecher former Nike PR senior executive Lee Weinstein, and veteran strategic communications executive John Lashway to form media and social media training firm Everything is on the Record. The Everything is on the Record team provides a unique blend of strategic PR and journalism expertise to our clients. We have worked in the trenches in corporate boardrooms with CEOs and company spokespeople. We've also worked in newsrooms alongside editors and reporters. Everything is on the Record uses an innovative and unique approach to media training. Through the use of current media and social media examples tailored specifically for you, we prepare you for how best to relate to the digital media world that exists today. Whether you're meeting with a reporter, sitting at your home computer, or typing on your smartphone, you're on the record. We'll also put you through real-life scenarios where you'd be dealing with a reporter so when you see the real thing, you'll be well-prepared and comfortable. With the goal of enhancing your image, protecting your reputation, and helping you connect with the people who are most important to your brand, we will show you how to develop the skills you need to be successful in a world where everyone has a camera, a recorder, and a desire to make news. For more information on our services and to learn more about our team of communications all-stars, go online to everythingisontherecord.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at everythingisontherecord.com. You can call us today at 503-701-2215. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. My guest is Christine Brennan. She's joined us on the show before. Love having her on as a guest. She's a columnist with USA Today. She's a commentator for NPR and for ABC News. 
You can follow her on Twitter at C Brennan Sports. Christine, how are you? Brian, I am great. It has been too long. How are you? I'm doing well. It has been way too long. I know we have a lot of ground to cover. Let's start with the NFL. I know you wrote a column recently about the NFL settlement with over 4,500 retired NFL players. They settled at $765 million. This had really been a thorn in the side of a pretty good NFL brand. Obviously, there's lots of arrests and things like that. That's a story for another day. But overall, the NFL has done very well business-wise. Where did you think this came out for both sides, the NFL and the retired players? You know, Brian, it was discussed right away, and, and kind of the verdict was in that the NFL won, and that um, by not having this linger on, by not having the PR nightmare of having uh, a lot of these older players have to, you know, if, if went to trial, which I don't know that anyone wanted that, but um, having uh, seeing these guys and, and the, the hardships and how difficult their lives are, and, and of course uh, what's happened with their minds, their brains, um, all, all of those things. It's best, you know, for for the NFL not to have that shown and not to have the world see it, um, and and also just to you know kind of be done with it. And that's you know basically pocket change for the NFL. That was the conventional wisdom. But my take was a a little different. I mean, who am I or who are you, or your listeners? You know, who are we to say that that money wasn't enough? The people that I defer to on that are those the the plaintiffs, the family members, the football players themselves, who uh, accepted this, who through their lawyers said, yes, this is good, we'll take this money. And the money no doubt goes to help right away, or as soon as they get it, uh, help these uh, players, these former players, their families who, who are in desperate need of, of services, whether it's medical help or physical help or what have you. Um, and I think that's a positive. So my takeaway, and I guess who's the winner we love to declare somebody's a winner or somebody's not. But I do think that we have to look at the fact that the players took this money, that the lawyers for the players and the families, uh, 4,000 strong, whatever, felt very strongly that this was a good amount of money for them and that this will be helpful to the players right now. And Lord knows these people need help. Um, you know, the story that, that really hits me, Brian, is uh, Sports Illustrated wrote this about Jim McMahon. You know, it wasn't all that long ago that Jim McMahon was the star of the Super Bowl, the Chicago Bears winning team, uh, Super Bowl winning team. And, you know, he's he's not that old. He's basically my age. <laughs> and then Jim McMahon, uh, now his girlfriend, um, has to put on the alarm system when Jim's in the house so that he does, so she knows if he's wandered outside. And often he cannot pick out his house as he's coming down the street, which house he lives in. That's Jim McMahon. Uh, and that's, to me, pretty scary stuff. It is scary stuff, and and I agree with you that uh, you know if this had been tied up in the courts, it could have been tied up for years more. And then the players that need help today, who knows if they're still around to benefit from the help that they could get? So I, I do agree with you that uh, you know all in all, I think the players came out pretty well. Let me ask you this: you know, from this day forward, so that was forty five hundred players. I've said on my show before, if I had a son. I probably wouldn't allow him to play football. I think it's a very risky sport. We've seen the documentation of even down at the, you know, the grade school and the high school levels. There's head traumas. There's so many risks involved. What do we do with the players going forward who are playing in college now and playing in the NFL now? What if they come 20 years later and say, you know what, I've got problems uh, should they just assume the risk that when you step on the field, you're playing a dangerous sport or does more need to be done? 
I think it's a little bit of both, but I would probably lean more towards more needing to be done. And here's why. I, I think absolutely. I mean, anyone who's playing football has to understand you're going to get hit. I mean, that, that goes without saying. And um, and yet we know the sport can do more. We know that there's knowledge that is, is yet to come as well as uh, information that they have and to make it as safe as possible. And I think that that is the duty of any sport, of any league, of, uh, you know, anyone. I mean, that's the responsibility. You you own it. You are in charge of it. You have to make it safe. You have to make it the best that you possibly can. I mean, that's just, we would say that about a business. We'd say that about a, a university, whatever it might be. In this case, running a football program for little kids, uh, whatever. Uh, now, that said, again, the parents know the risk when they put their child in football. I, like you, if I had a son, I, I think I would do everything possible to encourage him not to play football. Uh, I just think there's so many other sports where this, the risk is so strong, and, and it, is, it is scary. I mean, I've covered college and pro football my entire life uh, in my career, and, uh, and I love the game. I think we all love, I love college football, love my Northwestern Wildcats, my alma mater, and, and all of that. But, uh, but we also know it is a very scary, brutal sport. And so I think there's a lot to be learned on all sides. So your question is a very good one. But I do think there's a responsibility there that these leagues, the NFL, you know, clearly admitted something. I mean, they admitted nothing officially, but by giving out that huge settlement, at least huge in the, in the minds of the, the, the people who got it, uh, that there was clearly something was wrong. We know in the future that players can sue again. Um, I hope that's not the case, and I hope it's all solved, but I'm guessing that 20 years from now these issues will still be there, and um, there is some risk, but there also has to be uh, a very uh, diligent effort on the part of the people running the sport, the stakeholders, to make sure that they are making it as safe as possible. My guest is Christine Brennan. She's a columnist with USA Today. She's a commentator for NPR and ABC News. You can follow her on Twitter at Sports. So you have lived in Washington, D.C. for a long time. You have covered the NFL team there for a long time. You wrote a column this week saying that you will not call the Washington NFL team by the nickname that it has gone by for years and years. Explain. Yes, and uh, we know what that team is, of course. And I, I, it's, it's not going to be easy to not say the nickname only because it has tripped off my tongue for years. I, I covered uh, the team, I was the beat writer uh, for the Washington Post for three seasons, 85, 6, and 7. And so I have said that team nickname, Brian, uh, 10,000 times maybe. You know, I would say it 50 to 60, 70, 80 times a day when I was covering the team. And so it's going to be really hard to call them the Washington DCs or <laughs> the Washington NFL team <laughs> and not make a mistake. And I'm, I'm doing my best right now. I have to think about it. And for a while I will. But it, it's a racist term. Um, we, you know, obviously, people know what the name we're talking about. It starts with an R. And it's, it's absolutely racist. And it's offensive. And it offends uh, potentially millions of people, Native Americans and all of us. And it's just time. Um, it's just, it hit me this summer, actually. I was on a panel. Uh, talk, I was honored to be in one of the 9 for 9, the ESPN uh, documentary series on uh, it was the women in the locker room one, Let Them Wear Towels. And so there was a panel discussion after the screening, and I was on it, and several other people were as well, and I was talking about covering this team. And I said the name, and then I stopped, and I'm looking at a room, an auditorium, you know, a, a movie theater full of uh, people, several hundred, and I just stopped myself, and I said, you know, I'm sorry. I said, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? And it was the first time, Brian, that that name, that nickname of the Washington team, it hit me 
how bad that sounded. And so I guess we all have our moment when something hits us and, and we say enough is enough. As you know, Peter King, the, um, the you know, very highly respected NFL uh, writer for Sports Illustrated, I've known Peter you know, for, gosh, 25, 30 years, um, you know, he has now stopped doing this as well, stopped using the name. Um, I, there are others of us, and um, ESPN has got some people as well, Bill Simmons, Keith Olbermann. And I think there'll be more because I just think it sounds terrible. And um, hopefully Roger Goodell will start to really, you know, look at this and uh, put pressure on Dan Snyder, and maybe something will change over the next few years. It would be great if it happened very soon. Uh, I'm not holding my breath, but it would be great. Yeah, Dan Snyder has been pretty adamant. I mean, this isn't the first time this has come up. He's been pretty adamant about not changing the name of the team. Do you think that uh, there's a certain amount of pressure that can be applied that will get him to change his mind? Yeah, never was the word. And he said, put it in all caps to my colleague Eric Brady at USC Today several months ago. Never. And he said, N-E-V-E-R, caps. I will not change the nickname of this team. So, yes, I think that's pretty much set in stone. What was interesting to me, and I put this in the column, is that Roger Goodell was interviewed on a Washington, D.C. radio show. And he was asked about the, the name. And, you know, he said that if it's offending one person, then that's something we have to look at and try to deal with. Well, it's clearly offending one person. You know, it's, it's right. clearly offending a lot more than one person. And it seemed to me that Goodell is, after his very strong defense of the name and talking about the tr- traditions of it and the, and the heritage and the integrity and all of that that he, he did earlier this summer, um, now it seems like he's leaving a little bit of an opening. There's a little bit of a, you know, let's, let's talk about this. Let's, let's, uh, Make sure we're not offending, you know, as he said, if, we're, if this name offends one person, then we need to look at it and try to do the right thing. Well, okay, that says something to me that, that we weren't hearing earlier. And I'm wondering if, again, especially Peter King as the NFL writer for Sports Illustrated, I, I'm not around the NFL as much as I used to be, so I certainly would not put myself in that league vis-a-vis, you know, the, the National Football League with, as Peter King. I think it's a really big deal when Peter King says, I'm not using that name anymore. And uh, others as well. And again, I'm, I have a different, uh, I'm coming from a different place having been the beat writer uh, for the Washington Post for those three seasons. So here we are, all of us, starting to, you know, to make this point. And there, it's not a groundswell. It's not, a, it's not an army. It's not, you know, it's not uh, thousands of journalists. But it's a start. And I, I bet you, Roger Goodell is 54 years old. I've known him since we both started about the same time. He and PR, me covering the, you know, the league for the Miami Herald when I started. Uh, I was first at the Miami Herald, then the Washington Post. And, and Roger's a, a, you know, a smart guy with two, two twin daughters, with, uh, you know, twin daughters. And so I don't think he wants to be seen as the person who allowed a racist name to continue. I don't think that's how is what he wants to be part of his legacy. So it'll be very interesting to watch. But I'm, I'm encouraged that he seems to be opening the door just a little to more conversation about this. Well, it's interesting. I think I have two things to say on this. Number one, I think it is the right thing to do to change the name because it is a racist name. But number two, this is a sports business show. Think of the windfall that it would be for Daniel Snyder if you rebrand the team, rename the team. You know, maybe you change the colors, but all the people who have RG3 jerseys right now, they'd all go out and get the new RG3 jerseys and the branding for the new team with the new name. So, you know, if I'm Roger Goodell, I try and appeal to Daniel Snyder's business sense and say, not only is it the right thing to do, but guess what? This is actually going to make you and your brand a lot of money. 
Absolutely, and I've thought of this, and I'm actually surprised no one's really written it, um, that the, it, the, change the name, and let's just call them again, let's call them the Washington Monuments for the sake of, you know, I don't, that won't be it, <laughs> but, but something, right? Uh, and by the way, in this town, uh, people are used to this. Uh, Abe Poland owned, of course, the Washington Bullets, and he did not want to have that nickname in a town where there were a lot of murders. Right. Of gun, you know, there were homicides, a lot of gun violence. He changed the name, he had a contest, and it became the Wizards. It's been done. Um, and remember when Michael Jordan switched uh, numbers for a year or two, whatever that was, everyone had to go and buy the new Michael Jordan jersey. So right. you're right. Just from a financial standpoint, from the capitalistic side of this, all the new jerseys, all the new hats and T-shirts and, and everything, um, the, uh, you know, the paperweights, and it, w- it would be unbelievable. That alone... I mean, you should do it for all the right reasons, but that alone should be the reason for Dan Snyder to do this. Yeah, and it seems like I've never met Dan Snyder, but if you're going to appeal to him, you have to appeal to his uh, capitalistic side. So, you know, I would think someone could show him those numbers and uh, maybe that would finally get him to change his mind. A few minutes left with Christine Brennan, columnist with USA Today, commentator for NPR and ABC News. Follow her on Twitter at C Brennan Sports. Christine, earlier this week, we marked the 12 year anniversary of. 9-11. I can't believe 12 years have passed since that dreadful day. You know, I used to work at a sports venue. I've been to many sports venues. I know you've been to sports venues all over the world. And it's not a topic we talk a lot about, but as you're traveling around to venues around the world, are we doing a good enough job uh, securing these venues and keeping not only the people who play there, but the fans safe at sports venues? I wonder this myself, Brian. I you know, especially like being around a golf tournament. I, the U.S. Open a few months ago was at Marion in, in, in Philadelphia. It was great. It was a great tournament, great uh, great champion, Justin Rose, and Phil Mickelson almost won. It, you know, it was great. It was good stuff. Uh, but I, I going through the – now, maybe we went through the security – it was the media security, but even then they really looked in our bags. I mean, they did some – we, we put some stuff through uh, detect, metal detectors, but I, it was fine. It was fine, but it, coming off of the Boston Marathon – I, I kind of expected more, and it seemed as if it was pretty easy just to walk on through. Um, but that, again, may have just been us in the media. And I'm used to the Olympic world where it is especially stringent, and it should be. And, of course, the Olympics go all the way back to the Munich, uh, the tragedy in 1972 right. in Munich where 11 Israeli athletes and coaches were killed by Arab terrorists, um, September 5th, actually, 1972. And and so that was um, that changed everything for the Olympics, and that's why the Olympics has always been – much more of a, a, a secure venue, and, of course, the international aspect, and the whole world is there and, and the target that it can always be. So anyway, bottom line is uh, I'm used to the Olympics, and I'm used to stringent testing, but uh, you're right. I mean, I, I think we're frankly lucky, and I, I hate to say, say this because I'm knocking on wood as I say it. I think we're lucky that things don't happen more often. The Boston Marathon uh, tragedy was awful. It just it breaks your heart. I think about those people almost every day. I'm sure you do, and uh, your listeners, uh, the limbs that were lost, the lives that were lost, the little boy, um, you know, his sister lost her foot. I mean, just awful. You know, just terrible, um, terrible uh, things that happened. Um, and yet the resilience of Boston and how great and how amazing it will be at the start line, starting line next year, next April, at that Boston Marathon. I'm sure there will be many people who have recovered coming back for that. And honored. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, you can't, a marathon, you know, you can't control and, and be in charge of all 26 miles uh, and, and uh, you know, 385 yards. You just can't. So I, I think we're lucky. I hope, knock on wood, that things don't happen. But I'm always amazed 
when they that were they don't happen more often in some ways. I know that might sound strange, but I think we're lucky that when people get drunk and crazed and at a golf tournament, we're that close to these golfers, these multi-millionaire superstars. And if Tiger or Phil hits an errant shot, they're right there beside you, right next to you. People can be five feet away from them, two feet away. That worries me, and I think about that a lot. But, again, uh, it's uh, I think there is security, but I, I would say there should be more, and, and I'm always concerned that there's going to be a next time and that is, uh, you know, that's certainly a troublesome thought. I hope I'm wrong. I hope there's never a next time. But, but I think we've learned to be very cautious in this world of ours. Yeah, I, you know, unfortunately, I agree with you on all fronts. And I, I just feel like since 9-11, uh, as more and more time has gone on, the uh, returning to quote-unquote normalcy, you know, right after 9-11, the security measures really ramped up at venues, whether you were going to a sporting event or a concert or even when you're traveling in the airport now, I just don't see those same measures being taken. And, you know, I've seen specific things at venues that I won't even mention on this show right now because I don't want to give anyone any ideas, but it does scare me a lot. And I am also a little bit surprised that there hasn't been anything done other than what we saw in, in Boston last April. But, uh, boy, uh, I just think that people need to be more aware both at events, but then also – Promoters, teams, leagues, they need to take security more seriously. In my opinion, and I've sat down with people who run teams and promoters, it's kind of like that insurance policy that you don't want to pay for. Security right. is always the cost that, well, if we can trim anything off the budget, we'll do it with security. I think we're going to be okay. We can even have some volunteers who can do security. No. And then when something goes wrong, that's always the first place people look and they go, well, wait a minute. Were you really staffed up like you needed to be? Were they professionals or were they volunteers? So I think we need to be more diligent and not forget, not sounding paranoid here, but not forget, you know what? 9-11 wasn't that long ago and we do need to keep people and the people who participate in sports at the venues uh, safe. Absolutely. And I think, again, it's just, it can be a dangerous mix when you get people who are um, drinking and, um, you know, let's hope that there are no things that are being snuck into a stadium, but that, you know, weapons, that would give you, you know, that's what I think we all fear or concerned about. And, and again, I, good for all the security people who do the job right, and obviously people are doing their jobs, and I'm sure they're catching people trying to do things. Um, I think the NFL having the small bag policy, mm -hmm. while it's disruptive and <laughs> And, and annoying to many, many people, I'm sure. I obviously don't have to go through that myself, but, um, you know, bringing in a laptop or whatever when I go to a game. But uh, is, that, that's got to be annoying, but it's also, I think, smart. And that, that's a direct reflection of the Boston Marathon, and I think that's the NFL being smart. And, and that's, you know, that's a good sign. And let's hope that these leaders, again, continue to be ahead of the curve and are doing the due diligence that needs to be done to make sure that uh, bad things don't, don't happen again. Last question for you. You've covered the sports world a long time. You've seen many great tennis players. Serena Williams won her 17th major at the U.S. Open, and Rafael Nadal won his 13th. We always like to say, you know, who's the all-time greatest? And it seems like the latest flavor is always the greatest. But when you look at the body of work from Serena Williams and Rafael Nadal, I think you have to put them in that conversation. Give me your thoughts on where they stand in uh, history. It's a, it's a great question, and I think Serena's got to be right at the top. I really do. I mean, what a career. What is she, 32 years old now, I think? Yep. I mean, this is amazing. It's just amazing. I mean, as we know with women's sports, 
I think men's too, but especially with women's sports because of Title IX and the advancement. Uh, we know, and of course, it's not just it's not just physical advancement. It's nutrition. It's uh, training. It's coaching. It's psychological. Uh, also, equipment. You know, so that all goes into play. But we know that the women's game in tennis is better today than it was yesterday, and it will be better tomorrow than it was today. I mean, there's just there's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, the competition is fierce. Uh, obviously, American tennis, uh, women's tennis, is, is losing a lot of great athletes to other sports. You know, maybe Chris Everett would have been a soccer player, right? right. But she never had the chance. You know, maybe Pam Shriver would have been a basketball player, but she never had the chance. So they went to tennis because it was acceptable. Well, now, I think one of the reasons we don't have a lot of great American superstars in the women's side, or we have none in the men's, of course, is that um, is that there's, they're being lost to other sports because of the opportunities, because of Title IX. Interesting little sidebar. Nonetheless, the competition is fierce around the world, and Serena is still on top of her game. The power, the strength, uh, just the ability to think her way through. We shouldn't get enough credit for that, for her brain. Uh, just a champion's mind and mindset that she has. So I've got to put her at number one. I, I, I don't think anyone else have been great, great players, Billie Jean King and Martina Navratilova and on and on it goes. Um, but to me, Serena is the best of all time. Um, and then Nadal, I think, is in the top five. You know, that's a little harder to say. Um, he's got more of his career, we, we hope, to go than Serena, although I'm not going to count Serena out for several more years, but um, if that. But uh, I think, you know, I, I still would put Federer ahead of Nadal at this point. Um, there's some great names from the past, you know, Laver and people like that. Um, you know, Bjorn Borg, of course. So it, there's, you know, there's others that need to be in that top five. But But he's right there. And it's amazing because, again, the competition is so stiff from Federer to Djokovic, and he's just still um, just in a class almost by himself, and that's great to see. Yeah, I would agree with you on Serena. I think, you know, Steffi Groff is someone who comes to mind too, but Serena is just dominant. She's in such amazing condition, and uh, I agree that she's in an era where the players are are stronger and faster and a little bit better conditioned, and, and she's dominating this era. And with Nadal, you know, it's interesting. You look at his head-to-head with Federer, he's 21 and 10. So he, he's beaten Federer most of the time when they've played. Uh, he's won in the Olympics. Federer hasn't. He's won in Davis Cup. Federer hasn't. Um, so I think the jury's still out, and I've seen Federer play, and, and I think he's remarkable. But if you look at Nadal, I think he's definitely inching into that conversation for uh, greatest of all time. If you look at the body of work, the whole body of work, not just uh, Grand Slams. Yeah, I know. I think you have a great point, and, and uh, it's going to be fascinating to see if he can catch Federer on the major title. And does he have a better shot of catching Federer than, than Tiger Woods does of catching Jack Nicklaus? I think the answer might be yes at this point. Yeah, I would definitely take Nadal to catch Federer instead of Tiger to catch uh, Jack Nicklaus at this point if I had to. And we never would have had that conversation five years ago. So. I know. And next time you're on, we'll have to talk Tiger because I know you've had uh, many columns on him. And uh, it's interesting to see uh, you know what he's done this year, and what Phil has done this year, and what Adam Scott has done. It's been an interesting year in golf for sure. Oh, it has. It's been it's been fascinating. But you're right, Tiger winning all those tournaments, but then cannot win a major. Stunning, just absolutely stunning. He hasn't won a a major since the 2008 U.S. Open. Who would have ever thought of that? And obviously, it's something you know in his head or whatever, or physical. But he just has not been able to get over that that uh, big hurdle and. One wonders when he will. I think he will, but I, I don't think he's going to reach Jack Nicklaus, um, which would mean four more majors. And that's just, again, something we would never have said, uh, even you know, three or four years ago, much less uh, you know, before that. 
Christine Brennan with USA Today, commentator for NPR and ABC News. She's everywhere. You can follow her on Twitter at CBrennanSports. Always enjoy our conversations. Thank you so much, Christine. Me too, Brian. Thank you very much. You take care. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Stay in the know at sportsbusinessradio.com. Podcasts, blogs, and more. SBR. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. It's no secret that we're battling a tough economy these days. It's more difficult than ever for companies to position their brand in a unique way and reach their target audience. Sports Business Radio can help you, though. Sports Business Radio is syndicated in markets nationwide. Our popular podcast is regularly rated in the top 100 business news podcasts on iTunes and has listeners around the world. But our radio network and podcast aren't the only places your company will receive exposure when you join our family of sponsors. We'll also give you exposure via sportsbusinessradio.com and at our new Sports Executive Speaker Series events, which feature a conversation with a key decision maker from the world of sports in front of a live audience. And best of all, we can expose your product to the big-name guests that appear on our show. We'd love to have you on our team. Please contact me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com or at 503-701-2215 if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Sports Business Radio. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. Well, thanks for making time to join us for Sports Business Radio. A lot of thank yous this week. Mike Jones from Kapalua Golf Resort, John Wartime from Sports Illustrated, and Christine Brennan from USA Today. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast every week. Just click on the iTunes icon on the front page of sportsbusinessradio.com to have our show podcast downloaded to your iTunes every week. We'd appreciate it if you post a review of our podcast on iTunes. You can follow me on Twitter at SB Radio. I tweet regularly and would love to interact with you on Twitter. Also want to remind you uh, that the Sports PR Summit is going to be taking place uh, next year, and to find out the latest information where we're going to have it, the date of our event, go to sportsprsummit.com, sportsprsummit.com. We bring together uh, the top PR executives in all of sports, and then also we have some terrific athletes and reporters there, and we all interact, and it's a great event, sportsprsummit.com, if you're looking for more information on that. Thank you to our show staff, Brian Griggs, Josh Blank, and Doug Zanger. Uh, I hope you have a great week, and we will talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. And as long as I got my suit and tie, I'm going to leave it up on the floor tonight. And you got fixed up to the lines. Let me show you a good Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is David Stern. He's the commissioner of the NBA. It is always a pleasure, Brian. Bill Hancock, he's the executive director of the Bull Championship Series. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Mark, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. My guest is Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and general manager of the world champion New Orleans Saints. Pleasure to be with you guys. Mr. Allen, thanks for joining me. Thank you. My guest is Mark Emmert. He's the president of the NCAA. Oh, happy to join you. My pleasure. My guest is Eric Spolstra. He's the head coach of the Miami Heat. Brian, appreciate it. Glad to to be on the show. Mr. Nicholas, it's an honor to have you on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Brian. 
Visit sportsbusinessradio.com and subscribe to our free iTunes podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and stay connected to the business side of sports only with Sports Business Radio. 